Welcome to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. My name's Tammy Simon. I'm the founder of Sounds True. And I'd love to take a moment to introduce you to the new Sounds True Foundation. The Sounds True Foundation is dedicated to creating a wiser and kinder world by making transformational education widely available. We want everyone to have access to transformational tools such as mindfulness, emotional awareness, and self-compassion, regardless of financial, social, or physical challenges. The Sounds True Foundation is a nonprofit dedicated to providing these transformational tools to communities in need, including at-risk youth, prisoners, veterans, and those in developing countries. If you'd like to learn more or feel inspired to become a supporter, please visit SoundsTrueFoundation.org. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today my guest is Edward S.B. Brown. Edward S.B. Brown was the first head cook at Tassajara Zen Mountain Center in the late 1960s, and later he helped found Green's Restaurant in San Francisco. He's the author of several best-selling cookbooks, a new book with Sounds True called No Recipe, Cooking as Spiritual Practice. Also, there's a new book that has been created by one of his students, Danny S. Parker, called The Most Important Point. And Ed is also the subject of the 2007 film, How to Cook Your Life. I feel such a warmth of spirit a warmth of being talking to Edward S.B. Brown. He even introduced me to one of his childhood nicknames. Here's my conversation with Eddie Bear. We're talking today in celebration of the publication of a new book called The Most Important Point, Zen Teachings of Edward S.B. Brown. And in preparation for this conversation, Edward S.B. Brown and I were talking, and I said, can I call you Ed? And he said, actually, it's okay, because we're becoming friends, becoming friends here in a conversation broadcast to others. It's okay. You can call me by the nickname that my parents called me when I was growing up, Eddie Bear. So, Eddie Bear, welcome to Insights at the Edge. (laughs) Thank you so much, Tammy. I'm delighted to be back. It's always a joy and a pleasure to speak with you. and It it happens so infrequently. One has to have a book come out to do it, so it's great. Thank you. The Most Important Point. This title comes from a quote by Suzuki Roshi. Can you explain the title? Yeah. Um, Well, I was... uh, uh, practicing Zen at Tassajara, starting at uh, the Tassajara Zen Mountain Center, starting in 1967, and Suzuki Roshi was still alive then, and eventually I became his uh, disciple. Um, and one time in a ceremony, we publicly asked people, uh, publicly each student asks uh, the Roshi a question, and he answers. And he had been. This is a long answer to your question, which is quite simple, but excuse me. So, Take your time. Uh, um, thank you. Um, 
so he had been talking in that week of intensive week of meditation. His theme for that week had been Zen practice is like feeling your way along in the dark. And he would reach out his hand and his hand would move this way and that and feeling and and he said, You can't go very fast or you're gonna bump into something, you'll really hurt your nose. And uh you'll you'll stumble and so you have to go very slowly and then if you might think it'd be better to have light and know where you're going, but then you get in a hurry and you get less sensitive. And then you want other people and things to get out of your way so you can get to where you know you're supposed to go. So it's actually better to be more sensitive and go very slowly and feel your way in the dark. So my question after a week of the intensive meditation was, uh, Roshi, uh, now that the session is over, um, and, you know, if I'm feeling my way in the long and the dark, would it be all right to have a party? <laughs> <laughs> Good question. <laughs> and he said, yes, if you do it with that spirit. And I said, well, thank you very much. Um, thank you. And then after you say thank you, then you stand to bow and then to turn and walk away. And I started to stand and he said, the most important point. So I sat down again and started listening <laughs> The most important point, and he said it very slowly, is to find out to find out what is the most important point. And I was kind of at the time disappointed. Um, I thought I thought he was going to tell me the most important point. <laughs> but anyway, that was what he said. Was and he used to say many things. The most important point. So that was the most important point is to find out what is the most important point. So I started studying. And using that, and, it's just, and it was especially useful um, when one is confronted with circumstances that are challenging uh, or discouraging or upsetting, what's the important point here? Uh, and I found that very useful. And, and over the next um, number of months, uh, I would, you know, one thing after another would sort of pop into my awareness like gratitude. Oh, it's important to be grateful. Oh, sincerity, you know, we should be sincere, you know, and, and uh, be true to yourself. And uh, uh, and uh, kindness, being kind, uh, being, uh, being compassionate, being uh, uh, careful with things, and so on. Um, and um, after about two years of studying that, I thought, oh, the most important point is to be finding out what is the most important point. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that he was right, and you don't just answer the question once and for all. You keep, you keep asking. Uh, so it, it's, it was a good question for me, and uh, we wanted to share that with others. Um, before we go on, you know, I do want to mention that uh, this is really unusual circumstance because, in many ways, this is my student Danny Danny Parker put this book together. A Real Labor of Love, Danny's written three or four books on the Second World War, spent 20 years studying the Second World War and wrote at least three, if not four or five books on the Second World War. And after 20 years, he said, I'm done with the Second World War. I'm going to do your <laughs> book next. <laughs> he listened to over 300 of my talks. Going back to 1974, more than, you know, so I think some of the talks were as early as 1974, so that would be 35 years or 40 years, or whatever, you know, but uh, I, I think the earliest one in the book may be only 25 years ago. Um, 
and then he um, picked uh, some out and then edited them, and he put the book together. He picked out photographs to go in it, and so it, it's hard to understand it as my book, and yet I, I seem to have been involved in it somehow. <laughs> but it's a, it's a very it's a it's a labor of love on Danny's part and a labor of appreciation and 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 a, because he felt appreciative of the lectures. Uh, he wanted to share them with other people, as he thought that uh, you know, there would be other people out in the world who would similarly um, appreciate the talks as he did. Um, anyway, I, I wanted to get that in before sure. we go right past it. Yeah. Sure. And it, it's clear that Danny Parker put the book together from these transcripts uh-huh. of talks, but really there's a feeling of getting to know Eddie Bear and your teachings and your sense of humor and your warmth and your kindness and your goodness that comes throughout the entire book. It's a beautiful communication. Well, thank you. And that's thanks to your team of people. Okay. Now it's interesting when we're talking about the most important point, I think people want to think sometimes that, oh, now I know the most important point. Check. There's this one answer. But really what you're saying is it's in situations you have to know what's needed in that particular situation. In that particular situation, yes. Yeah. And exactly. People want to know the most important point and then you've got it and then and then um but you know, again this this is you know, right in line with of course Zikarishi's most famous teaching is, you know, beginner's mind and how hard it is to keep your beginner's mind. So a question like what is the important point? Here, now, today, this body, this mind, this place, this time, uh then it then you um you know, it will awaken your beginner's mind. I was at a class on Saturday and um we were learning, we were studying the difference between problems, challenges, and opportunities. And mm-hmm. sometimes we experience something as a problem or a challenge, and then when you start, when it becomes an opportunity, it's what is the most important point, or what uh, what, what do I do now, or what, you know, and that, that what will help here, or what can be done here, um, is awakening that kind of you're turning the problem or the challenge into an opportunity to to grow or to awaken or to realize or you know something by by bringing up a question or and the wonderful thing about the most important point is it you don't it's not necessarily a question but you you can turn it into a question what is the most important point now, you mentioned that you became a disciple of Suzuki Roshi and that this was in yeah. the late 1960s and he died in 1971. And yeah. I think many of our listeners don't really know that much about him. Maybe they've read Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, but that would be about it. Heard a few of quotes yeah. from him. Can you paint a picture of him for our listeners? Um, well, uh, you know, my... Um... <laughs> I don't know if I can or not. <laughs> Feel your way in the dark. <laughs> to saying something. <laughs> um, the most, uh, uh, you know, uh, David Chadwick um, was another one of Suzuki's disciples, ordained the same day that I was, uh, which in September, the year that he died in December. And um, 
David, after Suzuki Roshi died, you know, became decided to collect Suzuki Roshi's lectures, and he's created this whole Suzuki Roshi archive now since 1971. Uh, an incredible amount of work, and many, many people, most of the people at Sensen, were not interested in supporting him to do this, and David did it out of love, you know, and he, and that he wanted to share Suzuki Roshi's spirit and teaching with others. Um, and he wrote a, a, a biography of Suzuki Rishi, which is called Crooked Cucumber, because that's what Suzuki Rishi's teacher, first teacher, Gyokuji and so on, had called him, was Crooked Cucumber. It was a term of endearment, you know. Um, and uh, so anyway, uh, David had, had wrote that, and I was reminded of this too, because David did another little book that's now called, which is, short, wonderful little Suzuki Roshi teaching stories, and it's now called Zen is Right Here. It was, uh, to start with, called uh, To Shine One Corner, I think. To shine one corner of the world, Suzuki Roshi said, is enough. Mm. Just to take care of this moment is enough. Mm. Um, but in the beginning of that book, there's somebody who's quoted as saying, you may not remember what he said, but you'll remember what you felt when he said it. And I think the most, the most remarkable thing is you, you what can you, how do you, how do you describe it? But you, you know, but Suzuki Roshi had a capacity to see people, and part of seeing people is to see right through, see right through people's persona, their pre, their their performance, their their shtick, and to see the person, to see you, and to meet you on the spot. And it, the, and you know, and it was, it was right away. The first time I bowed to Suzuki Roshi, and I was wondering, is he going to like me? And I looked at his face after I after I bowed, and I looked in his face, and there was not a sign of anything, liking, disliking, appreciation, di- approval, disapproval, not a sign of anything, and yet I felt completely, utterly received completely met and I was okay and it's so remarkable to meet anybody like that in their life mm. somebody who you know it's like it's like who who all these years ever sees any there people say you've got problems you need help what's wrong with you anyway you're too much of a curmudgeon you're too angry you this you're that you know that people want to tell you about how they dislike your performance without seeing you. And um, and then, of course, they're probably upset that you don't see them <laughs> when they start telling you those things. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have the idea that when you... We have the idea that, that if somebody could just see how remarkable and special we were, then they would they would be bowing and doing all these things. And Suzuki Roshi didn't expect you to do anything. We over and over again said, is there something we can do for you, Roshi? Is there anything we can do? And he'd say, you do your practice. And we would give him things, you know, a book or a painting or oranges or apples or, and he'd put them on the altar and he said, and you'd think, wait a minute, no, no, wait a minute, no, I, I, I've given that to you. What are you doing putting it on the altar? And he said, and he would say, 
you're giving it to me because you see the Buddha in me, because you see the sacred in me. So I'm just putting the gift where it belongs. And uh, all of that, that being able to see you and then, and then, and then, you know, so little, if anything, to do with status exchanges. Like who understands and who doesn't understand and, you know, and he was so gracious about that. I mean, David has all kinds of stories in his book. Um, but one time he had been out um, gardening at Tassara and he he did a lot of rock work and eventually I did a fair amount of rock work with him in the Japanese garden and then stone walls and... Um, and one time he, you know, and he'd always work in his, in his, uh, Zari's, you know, his rubber thong sandals. <laughs> he and Paul Disco was doing carpentry. Paul Disco was the same. Um, and people always want you to put on your boots and it's like, huh? <laughs> We're following the master's way. <laughs> but, um, uh, he came back to, um, his cabin and his his Anja, the person taking care of his cabin, and was there. And she she brought uh, she saw him come to the door, and then she brought a little uh, pan of water, and then she brought a towel. And he said, "When you see what somebody needs and you give it to them, that's a that's Kuan Yin, that's a Bodhisattva, that's wonderful. Thank you." So um, you know, he made you feel so good that way, and I have. You know, I don't know, not that many stories, but several stories of, which I could tell you, but <laughs> if we have time. <laughs> um, but quite remarkable that way. The, I'll tell you one more for now. But, um, and I was just thinking about this in the last couple of days, so it seems timely. But he used to stand on the bridge. At Tessar, there's a bridge between the main area and then there's cabins going from the main area on down to the pool and beyond the pool, some uh, a barn and some other dormitories and things. And uh, he used to stand on the bridge and every so often I would walk by and because my cabin was the first cabin across the bridge and my room was on the back so you could see the doorway to my room from the bridge. And, um, you know, you have to understand, of course, that I was someone with extreme low self-esteem uh, in my early 20s and for many years. And, you know, and you, what's the important point? Is it a good performance or whatever? You know, anyway, um, but um, he, we were standing there and he said, you know, you've, and the, the thing was that the door to my cabin, the ground, the floor of the cabin was about two and a half, three feet above the ground outside the cabin. So I had, I had piled up some rocks to be able to step up to the door to my cabin. And one day we were standing out there and he said, you know, those, those rocks piled up outside your cabin? Uh, it doesn't look so good. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, yeah, I know, and, and it's wobbly too. He said, we pile rocks like that on top of graves in Japan. Not a good feeling. And um, uh, I didn't think much about it, but, you know, I agreed, and, yeah, not a good feeling, and I didn't know what to do. I wasn't, at that point, doing rock work. I was working in the kitchen. And sometime later, I don't remember how long it was, but one day I saw him in his cabin, and he said, 
Ed, um, you know, this afternoon, I, you know, that, do you know that big rock outside the office? And I said, yeah. And he said, um, I'm asking Paul Disco to move that rock, uh, outside the office to your, to your cabin this afternoon to be your doorstep. Would that be okay? And I said, oh, but Roshi, people love to sit on that rock in those days, you know, the late 60s, uh, late 60s there. Um, a lot of people were still smokers, so people would sit on that rock and smoke cigarettes outside the office because you could get your mail in the office and then come out and have a cigarette while you read, read your mail. Um, and I said, well, uh, people love to sit on that rock and read their mail and, and smoke cigarettes. And he said, we'll get another one. And sure enough, that afternoon I was in my cabin and they had put that rock on this uh, metal sled and the chain to the back of, we had this um, 1949 Dodge Power Wagon. <laughs> and sure enough, the rock was in the in the metal sled and coming across the wooden bridge, it was, you know, the, the really loud. Um, and so I knew the rock was coming and then we moved it over to my, we tossed all those rocks uh, off the doorstep into the creek and then slid over the other rock. Uh, we were using, um, short lengths of two or three inch pipe, probably two inch pipe. And you just get the end of the rock up and roll it forward on the pipe and then put more pipes in as you go along. And pretty soon you're taking the pipes from the back and putting them in the front and you just roll it over. I learned a lot about, you know, how to do things the easy way with doing rocks with Suzuki You didn't try to muscle it. Um, anyway, um, it was an amazing, amazing experience. And it was just the right size. We didn't have to dig it into the ground. It wasn't going to go anyplace. We didn't have to, we didn't have to make it level. It was magnificent rock. It was four, five feet long and, at its widest, about two foot wide, and then it angled down to the ends. And and then every time, when I would step into the cabin or out of the cabin, there was Suzuki Rishi. Hmm. Hmm. Supporting me. You mentioned, Eddie Bear, that you were a disciple of Suzuki Roshi. You used yeah. that word. And, you know, I think a lot of people don't use that word in today's everyday kind of conversation. There's a nervousness around it. Like, could I ever really trust a human being enough to say that I was a, their disciple? Really? Like, no, you know, I mean, they, you know, I studied with them for a period of time or something like that. <laughs> well, there's, there's being a disciple, um, you know, considering yourself a disciple, but I had a ceremony of becoming a Zen priest. Um, uh, being ordained as a Zen priest, um, as his disciple, as his ordained by him as his priest. Uh, technically, it's I mean uh, you know technically I was his disciple, and he, um, but he was actually you know he died in three months later, uh, and David Chadwick says he um, that because Suzuki Rishi was not feeling that well, and David had the feeling he said. He thought at the time, if we don't get ordained, it, it's, it could be years, because he, he already had the feeling that Baker Roshi wasn't going to be ordaining people. Mm-hmm. So David said that he's the one who talked to Katagiri Roshi and, and got Katagiri Roshi to, to 
do the ceremony on behalf of Suzuki Roshi. Mm-hmm. And as an ordained priest in Suzuki yeah. Roshi's lineage, what yeah. do you feel is your responsibility to carry forward? Well, that's, uh, you know, quite a question. Um, and um, I've been struggling with that and struggling with that, or, or, you know, working with that and working with that for years, all my, you know, ever since. What, what is my responsibility? And coincidentally, we waited just long enough to have this interview that I can say yesterday I opened my Zen Center. Uh-huh. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Only 50 years after, mm-hmm. what, 50 years from when? Oh, anyway, um, no, it's not quite 50 years since I was ordained, because I was ordained in 1971, so it's it's uh, 48 years. Yeah. Um, uh, because typically then, you, you know, you do something to carry on your teacher's tradition, uh, and the most... The most common thing is you you start your you you have your center or your thing you have your students and then you know because I the reason I wanted to become a priest was I was so inspired by Suzuki Roshi by who he was and how much he helped people and I thought I would like to do that I would like to be there for people and help them but I you know many things over the years but I never I never really felt like oh, okay, I'll have a Zen Center, and various circumstances happened over the last number of months and weeks. And um, I have a what was a rental unit on my property here in Fairfax, and I um, I had the tenants move out, and I turned it into a meditation hall. So I'm now becoming my own benefactor. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and um, creating a meditation hall for myself. You know, as part of our conversation about the book, The Most Important Point, I wanted to pull out some of the important points that struck me, that were meaningful oh. to me, well, and talk about them with that's you. One that's one of the things right. I appreciate about talking with you, Timmy. You do your, re- you do your homework. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. I always want to offer to people the Thank most you. beneficial conversation. I want to help myself and people listening. Yeah, and you you do that rather than saying to me, so tell us about some of the most important points in the book. (laughs) (laughs) So thank you. You do your part. That's right. I appreciate it. I'm I'm here to meet you, Eddie Bear. I'm right here. Okay, so I loved this teaching, Take the Backward Step. And I'm wondering if you can unpack that for our listeners. Um, well, I associate. Well, first of all, of course, to take the backward, to turn your the the full expression is that you that meditation in the Zen tradition, the Soto Zen tradition, is to take the backward step, uh, to turn your light, to take well, it's one way, one is to take the backward step and turn your light inward, or to turn your light inward and take the backward step, or to take the backward step that turns your light inward. So that's the full the full of the sense of taking the backward step is you're turning your light inward rather than outward. And I associate this with, and it's, it even, it seems even more prevalent than it ever has, uh, that in our culture and, you know, even Buddhism and meditation, everything is presented. What are you going to get out of it? How do you advance? How do you advance forward? How do you get somewhere? 
and where do you want to get to, and we'll help you with that. And this teaching will help you with that. And we're going to help you perform better, do your job better, be a happier person, you know, be this, be that, and you'll become more successful. We're going to take you to the next level. We'll really help you out here. And everything is presented, you know, as, you know, and and I've done courses at some places where they give you a format for how you can just, how you describe your course. Yeah. And you have to tell people what they're going to, you know, in this weekend, you will learn yeah. and list what you're going to get out of it. You know, and because that's that's the way you present things, and it's even true, of course, with cookbooks. Ed Brown will teach even inveterate meat eaters how to produce vegetarian masterpieces. Can't we just cook and have a good time and enjoy ourselves? And, <laughs> no, or do we have to? If we're going to cook, we need to make a masterpiece. Yeah. Or yeah. who are you trying to impress? Yeah. Can't we can't we appreciate and enjoy being here on on the planet Earth and and learn how to how to be with things and how to do a little gardening and cooking and, you know, and, and visit with our friends and, um, you know, be sweethearts. <laughs> and rather than the pressure of performance, you know, the, and you're only as good as your last meal. How are you going to surpass yourself? Um, and I just, I, I, after, I mean, it, uh, you know, I, I, I did that for a while and, and at, at Tassajara that was, one of the things that happened is I, I decided, no, you know, I, I started out thinking that it was my job to tell other people what to do and to get them to do it and, and that I should know how to do it and I should get them to do it the way they're supposed to and I would teach them this and that and eventually I decided, you know, my job is to find my successor and make myself, you know, really unimportant. Um, or as Naomi Shihab Nye says in her lovely poem, The, the Red Brocade, uh, you know, here, take the red brocade pillows in there. Um, but she says, uh, I'm, I'm getting off the subject here. But anyway, at some point in the, uh, in the poem, she says, um, no, I wasn't busy when you called. <laughs> I wasn't intending to be busy. That's the armor everyone put on to pretend they had a purpose in this world. Yeah. And so, you know, the backward step is you take off your armor and in our tradition, you sit down and you face the wall. You don't face the world and like, how am I going to handle what's coming next? You turn, literally, you turn towards the wall. You're turning, and in that sense, the metaphor is you're turning inward. And of course, just this morning, somebody said uh, how they used to they used to do a, a routine, a comedy routine, uh, a clowning routine of I forget the woman's name, but she was, you know, a swami. And she'd say, oh, yes, let's go inside. Oh, what a mess. <laughs> <laughs> but um, uh, classically, you know, um, in Soto Zen, you're just, you, you, you just, you're just, you're sitting with it. And Suzuki Roshi really emphasized no gaining idea, with no idea of gain, where you're trying to get to. And the more you, the less you have an idea where you're trying to get to, then the more you can actually notice then you again it's like feeling you're in the dark you're you're sensitive and careful and and what what is this what's going on here rather than how do i get rid of this and attain that and perfect this and improve that so that i so that i i mean it it all goes back and and of course suzuki roshi was and i've heard stories about it you know incredibly good friends with chungpa Rinpoche. and one of my friends who studied with um 
with me at Tatsahara, later studied with Trimper Mabashe, and, and he said one time, Trimper Mabashe said, what is an advanced Dzogchen master doing in this Tibet in those Japanese robes? <laughs> <laughs> About Suzuki Roshi. Yeah. You know, they really saw each other, and Trungpa Rinpoche was the same, you know, because he wrote, you know, uh, uh, cutting through spiritual materialism. It was all about that. Mm-hmm. You know, that so much, uh, um, you know, I'm going to become more spiritual. Don't you think that's a rather materialistic idea? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and and to to have this, uh, and, you know, it, it, and you, you, of course, you can sit for years without... You know, but occasionally you have no gaining idea, and, and and of course, one of the times you get to no gaining ideas when none of your gaining ideas worked out, <laughs> and then you go, oh my God, I'm just going to have to sit here. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, but and none of my none of my none of my plans for you know uh, spiritual advancement have worked out, and now I just sit with this. Whoa. And that's sometimes when you get to, um, you know, no gaining idea. But it's really quite brilliant, and the no gaining idea is very much then associated with taking the backward step that turns your light inward. I'm thinking of using this for my next book, you know. Tell which me. Which I would actually write. Huh? Tell me. <laughs> okay. Um, well, in 1984, after I'd been practicing at the Zen Center for 19 years, I was at Tassahara, and due to various circumstances, I was leading the Tassahara practice period. There were 22 students. Many things happened in that practice period, but after a couple months, one day I came in, and I'm the head teacher, so I come in with the final roll down of the Han, and then the, um, and I come up to the altar, boom, 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 and I offer, and I bow, and I offer incense, and there's three big bells, and I bow, and then, and then the head teacher walks around the room. It's called the jindo. It's the morning greeting, and then the students who are facing the wall know you, you are aware of when the teacher's walking past behind you, and you put your hands up and uh, with your palms together, what's what we call in Japanese saying gasho. You put your palms together, your hands in front of your face. Uh, it's like a bowing without bowing. You put your hands together. And um, I got finally to my seat, and I sat down, and I thought to myself, oh, well, what shall I work on today? Uh, Concentration? Equanimity? Compassion? Uh, uh, What? uh, Generosity? What? Is there something I, I, I should be working on today? You know, how do I advance my practice? <laughs> and a little voice said, I don't know where this voice came from. And it said, why don't you touch what's inside with some warmth and kindness? And I didn't even have to say a thing. And I just, my face was completely soft. My robe was wet. Tears were just dripping down onto my lap. So I started touching what was inside. And, 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 you know, I I had cried before that. But I had been busy being a Zen person. Uh, and uh, so I started just in meditation, why don't I feel what's inside? So, and then uh, about a month after that, Katagiri Roshi came to visit. He was our interim abbot at the time. And I went to see him and I said, Roshi, I'm in meditation now. I'm, I'm touching what's inside is... 
I'm wondering if that's okay, if that's, you know, or if there's something else I should be doing that, you know, would help me advance more in Zen practice. (laughs) And, uh, you know, how do you gain something? How do I advance in practice? And Kagi Rishi said, he was so straightforward. And he said, Ed, for 20 years, I tried to do the Zen, the Zazen of Zen Master Dogen before I realized there was no such thing. And the little voice inside me said, oh, right on schedule. I've been practicing for 19 years. He'd been practicing for, he said, 20. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what am I supposed to be accomplishing? Hi friends, my name is Jono Fisher. I'm the Executive Director of the Sounds True Foundation. The Sounds True Foundation is a new non-profit organization dedicated to bringing the benefits of transformational education to communities in need, including at-risk youth, prisoners, veterans, and those in developing countries. A prisoner wrote to us and shared his experience of how a Sounds True program changed his life. He said, I've been sitting in the chapel sound room, listening to one of your programs about healing the father-son wound. I've always hated my father, but never knew why, nor have I wanted to change the way I feel. As I listened, I began to bawl like a baby. I'm glad I was alone because I couldn't stop myself. I called my dad that night and asked him if he would visit, which he's not done since I came to prison. Thanks to Sounds True for letting me feel something positive for the first time in years. If you'd like to learn more about how the Sounds True Foundation is helping change lives or to become a supporter, please visit soundstruefoundation.org. You know, it's interesting, Eddie Bear, because one of the things I picked up on was when you mentioned in this conversation how in your early 20s you said that you had extreme low self-esteem. And one of the things I wanted to hear about was how your Zen practice and your life and work at Tassajara, how that became healed over time. And it seems like you're yeah. pointing to that in this yeah. uh, sharing of how your practice yeah. started addressing whatever was coming up in your experience. Well, um, and it was about that same time that I, um, you know, one way or another had the realization and that, that kind of this uh, with this uh, visit with Katagirishi kind of confirmed it, uh, I realized that who you are and your value uh, as a human being is not dependent on your performance or your accomplishment or your attainment. But I, I, and I thought, and it was right around that time and I had been thinking and then I got it. It's not dependent, you, who you are is not dependent on any of that. And, I am a sweetheart. I am a good person. I am a decent human being. I am sincere, wholehearted, 
uh, you know, and I'm I'm doing the best I can. I'm offering what I I'm I'm sharing, you know, I'm 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 working on things, I'm studying, um, you know, um, I'm working on you know communication skills. I'm uh, working on how to, uh, to 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 do various things, you know, and how to be in meetings and how to do different kinds of work. And but fundamentally, there's nothing wrong with me. I'm fine. And somehow, you know, you hear this, you hear this, and you hear this, but you have to get it that who you are is fundamentally just fine. Who you are is not dependent on... And it's related to, you know, of course, Suzukurashi is saying, somebody once asked him, Suzukurashi, who are you? And he said, I'm someone that you can see and listen to and uh, talk to, and I'm someone you'll never know that none of us will ever know. And that, you know, someone will never know. That's who you are. And it's, um, and that at some point, you know, one, one can shift one's understanding of who one is to this, the you that is not, it, that was never an object in the first place. You know, we keep evaluating ourselves because we're seeing, we're seeing ourselves as an object and then the object has different ages and different uh, measures of success or failure and um, has done various things or not and and you can you can assess that object but you the subject has never been has never you know you never appeared you're never disappearing you're you you were never tainted you're never pure you you don't increase you don't decrease you, you know you are your consciousness itself you get in trouble of course if you say the consciousness itself is Jesus or you know but Consciousness itself, and we're all just consciousness itself. And then we worry, though, about all these assessments that are going around, and all, all the uh, this compared to that. Mm-hmm. So I got that more and more, and then you know, but it didn't solve everything. It just you just end up with new challenges. <laughs> you know, I think it's a very powerful statement to be able to say, Eddie Bear, to be able to say, you know, I recognize that the energy that's me, whatever you want to call it, is sincere and wholehearted. Those are really beautiful things to be able to say about oneself. Thank you, Tammy. And I'd love to know more about, because both of those words are very powerful to me, sincere and wholehearted. Well, that's wonderful. Yeah, they're powerful to me too. What does it mean on the inside to feel those things? Well, again, one's one's value is usually determined in reference to others or to the world, and you know, I'm I'm right there with Michael Mead and other people who say, you know, we grow up and then you learn to fit in. And Bly, Robert Bly, he would go on and on about this. You grow up, and you're learning how to fit in, and then you put in the bag everything that doesn't fit. And then at some point you, and then you've you've got half of yourself or something in the bag. You've got all these, you know, what otherwise would be gifts. You've got them stuffed away because, you know, you're not supposed to play. You're not, you're not supposed to play with your food or do this or do that. And pretty soon you've got a lot of your, uh, you know, childhood, childhood enthusiasm or exuberance is, you know, like most of us, of course, are too exuberant. 
And but it's just learning to fit in, and you learn to fit in, and then you have to, in order to fit in. And Brene Brown talks about this too. You know, uh, you've got that. You've got all these great CDs there, which sounds true. Um, and you know, to to fit in, you abandon parts of yourself. And to be sincere, you you're taking back all those parts and owning them. And sincere, I love the the definition of. Uh, S-I-N is like S-A-N-S in French, without, and Sere uh, is wax, without wax, and wax is what was used to fill in the blemishes in the, in, the, um, in the statues. Or sometimes if people clipped uh, metal out of coins, they'd fill in the space with wax to make it look like a whole coin. And so sincere is the blemishes show... And it's like Robert Bly's poem, being yourself, is that like limping? Is that like limping? Because being yourself, it's, you know, it's not what the world is looking for. The world is, oh, look at that. That's so weird. That's so, you know, this or that. So the world will assess you according to wherever they're looking from. And it doesn't measure whether you're sincere or not, whether you're, you're who you are. And you're not trying to hide it. And you're not trying to hide it doesn't mean that you're trying to flaunt it or show it or emote it. But you're who you are. And uh, and in that sense, of course, a work in progress. And I use that probably somewhere in the lectures. I don't know. I hope so. But Zen Master Deshaun said finally in the middle of this diatribe about Zen and how a lot of Zen practices like as, you know, tethering donkeys, a post for tethering donkeys, um, but at some point in the middle of all that, he says, realizing the mystery is nothing but breaking through to grasp an ordinary person's life. And I hear things like that. I go, I'm in the right school. I'm not, I'm not in the performance school. I mean, although there's a lot of performance practice, I'm not in the performance school. I'm in the... Another you know, story about Suzuki Roshi is, of course, he said... Some of you are trying to be good Zen students. Why don't you be yourself? I'll get to know you better that way. Because being a good Zen student, how do you know who's who? Who who is a good Zen student? And sincere, you start to feel who. You start to sincere. You're you're you, and you you, and and it's okay to be you, and you honor, uh, you know, the things that happen. Uh, you're, you're you, and you're, uh, and you, and you don't. You're not covering it over. You're not hiding it. So, at various points, I've set out to be sincere, and I, I work on it. And you know, sometimes I overdo it. You and I, I've shared too much with people. So I, I don't tell just anybody that I'm Eddie Bear, mm-hmm. <laughs> or they make fun of you. I appreciate you the sincerity about? quite a lot. You prop. You know, you're, you're just a, you're a. Uh, you know, emotional baby, you know, you're a puddle, you know, you, whatever, you, you uh, melt down too much in public, uh, you know, and they, oh, yeah, I, I don't have the requisite defenses, I guess, to withstand, you know, what's going on. You know, I, yeah, I, I get overwhelmed sometimes, but, uh, so that's sincere to me. And then, you know, wholehearted is you decide 
and each of us just keeps deciding, you know, what are you going to give your heart to? Hmm. And of course, in Zen, the idea is you just practice giving your heart to each moment. You give your heart to sweeping, to raking. You give your heart to sitting. You give your heart to doing the dishes. You give your heart to the conversation. You give your heart. And because if you wait to find something valuable to give your heart to it, you have no idea how to do it. <laughs> so you, you practice with whatever's coming up. Mm-hmm. Or, and another way to say give your heart is I use that expression, I think. You know, another one of Dogen's expressions um, let things come home to your heart and let thing, let your heart go out and abide in things. Hmm. That's a combination of Dogen and Suzuki Rishi and me. I like it. It's a good soup. Well, Dogen said, you know, it's usually translated, let things come and abide in your mind. Uh-huh. But mind is shin, which is heart-mind. and I, So I would prefer to use heart because I think that's more the feeling. Let things come and not come and, you know, fill your mind. No, they come and fill your heart. And they come home to your heart and you invite them home to your heart. And then you let your heart go out to things. And that's, and you, and it doesn't happen because you have such a big heart. It happens because you practice giving your heart to things. Mm -hmm. You know, one connection, Eddie Bear, just to share for a moment that I've seen in my own life is in giving up any idea of gain. There's yeah. more available to meet each moment in a heartful way because I'm not going anywhere. Absolutely, yeah. Those two ideas have been very connected in my own yeah, unfolding. Absolutely, yeah. Without the, because if you're gaining again, that's like, uh, you know, when there you you have a lot of light and you know where you're going, and you know what you want to gain, then you're getting insensitive and you're pushing things out of your way and you, uh, you want to accomplish something. So. Um, and when, you, when you're not doing that, then you have much more of your awareness available for how are you, what's happening here, um, you know, what's for dinner, you mm-hmm. know, exactly. feeling your way along and, you know, what do, what do we do next and what, what's, where is my heart being drawn to, which is another aspect of this. It's not quite as simple as, you know, let things come and abide in your heart, let your heart go out to things. But it's also, you know, finding out where your heart likes to go. And I somehow, you know, begin to, I mean, I decided that was the Zen for me. I mean, there's Zen and there's Zen and there's Zen. So I like the Zen of sincere and wholehearted and giving your heart to things and letting things come in about in your heart. And But um, anyway, not everyone understands it that way. So Now, in terms of letting the blemishes show. So I did watch this German film that was made yeah. about you, How to Cook yeah. Your Life. And one of one of the things that stuck out for me, and I'm sure it stuck out for anybody who, who watches this, is there are a couple scenes, maybe you know what I'm talking about, where you oh, yeah, were absolutely. unbelievably angry. You were so angry that you yeah. couldn't get the, the wrapper off the cheese, and it was, you know, stopped. That was a setup, by the way. Was it? I was curious about that. So it was kind of like... Uh, <laughs> Uh, maybe I told not. Doris, I said, but Doris, you know, people aren't going to, she said, it's just a movie. And I said, yeah, but people watching the movie aren't going to know that it's just a movie. <laughs> no, I thought, I thought, God, uh, Eddie Bear needs some like anger management stuff. But uh, tell me about why that was important to include in the movie that way, whether it was a setup or based on. Well, that was you know, Doris's whatever. idea. Okay. She said, uh, 
uh, Ed, you're in a movie because you're not Thich Nhat Hanh, you're not the Dalai Lama, you, you let your emotions show. And people are going to be able to relate to that, and they're going to be able to identify with you, and then, and then they'll listen to what you have to say. So that was Doris's idea, and some people feel that way, and then other people... I've watched that with groups of people who are so entertained and, you know, energized by seeing, you know, the movie, and then other people who are just so uh, engaged in, like, uh, you know, criticism and judgment and, you know, why are they making a movie about him? I'm a better Zen student than that, and he doesn't know how to control his feelings. And So when I watched it with a group of, you know, Soto Zen Buddhist teachers, 20 or 30 of them years and years ago, it was close to when after the movie came out, at a teacher's conference in San Francisco Zen Center, um, the first thing they asked me is, your mother died when you were three and you were in an orphanage for four years? It's really different what people see in that movie. <laughs> so, um, so part of the movie is what you see, of course. But anyway, that was Doris's idea that, uh, and I, I, you know, I was thinking about this too lately because I, I never asked Doris, would you make a movie about me? Doris came, Doris was at Tassara and she was at some of my cooking classes and her daughter was there. Her daughter was 16 or something then or 15. And, um, she said, Ed, do you want to make a movie? And I said, sure. And I said, in fact, I'm going to be in Austria next year. And she said, where's that? And I said, Scheibs. And she said, I can film you there. I'm in Munich. So um, sure enough, she got it all together to film the movie the next year, which was 2006. And then it came out in 2007. But that was her idea, was to um, that, that um, people would see me as being you know, more on the same level as they were on. And it wasn't somebody higher some authority talking down to them. It was more like a friend. Mm -hmm. And this is like the difference between, by the way, I see, I've thought about it a fair amount, obviously, or not obviously, but I've thought about it a fair amount. I sometimes see, you know, there's two kinds of teachers and one kind is masterful. Uh, they do not melt down in public and, you know, they, um, and there's many examples of masterful teachers and, um, but, then and then if you, and then some of them though they say if you do what I tell you to you too could become masterful. Mm -hmm. But really, what you're learning is to do what, to do what they tell you to. <laughs> and how masterful how masterful do you become then? Then you're like in the situation with the, you know, the famous uh, Chinese Zen story was the teacher said all of you gobblers of dregs if you keep on like this when will you have today? Haven't you heard there are no teachers of Zen in all of China? And goblins of dregs is, you know, you chase around after what other people say. Yeah. It's just that it's the dregs of their life. Yeah. And then you're going to follow and you're going you're gonna to keep gobbling these dregs. When will you have today? When will you be you and, and you know, uh, and, and be sincere and wholehearted and, and, and do something that comes from your heart, your, you know, that's from, you know, the depths of your being. Or mm -hmm. what in Zen is called, Suzuki Roshi used the term true nature. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, to to know your true nature and to express yourself fully. 
So anyway, there's this masterful Zen teacher, and then you do what they say, and then there's another teacher who says, oh, uh, oh, you're scared? Me too. What do you want to do? <laughs> Should we sit together? Should we go for a walk? <laughs> you know, would you like a cup of tea? It's a little bit like I was listening to another one of those uh, Michael May tapes, and he said, you know, you're, you're, child wakes up in the night and comes in and says, I'm scared. And, and then you say, oh, it's all okay. No, it's not all okay. <laughs> you don't yeah. know that it's all okay. And and you you might just as well say, yeah, me too. I'm scared too. What what should we do? Should we, let's turn on all the lights. <laughs> let's check all the doors. <laughs> I mean, let's have a cup of hot chocolate. I mean, so... So you're not trying to deny the difficulty um, in that situation or the you know the problems. You're 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 actually trying to be rather realistic rather than. And the fact is that none of us. And come on now, the first noble truth in Buddhism. The fact is, you know, you have so little capacity to be in masterful or in control of much of anything. You know, I mean, that's the first noble truth, is things cannot be controlled. Your experience cannot be controlled. Life cannot be controlled. Everything is out of control. What are you going to do? <laughs> but, but somehow, it's still, people are still, you know, love it that there are masterful people out there, and that yeah. you could listen to them, and they'll help you. If we called this first type masterful, would we call this second type more like a friend or a companion? Yeah, more or... like a friend or a spiritual companion or... Uh-huh. You know, I, I think of it as a friend in the dark, but that gets that gets kind of funny because then, like, uh oh, Michael Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not what we're talking about. It's fine. No, it's a different know, kind but, of friend you know, in so the dark. You have dark. to be careful yeah. with your language. So I don't know if a friend, is, but yeah, spiritual friend, companion, and somebody that you don't have to hide all these things from. Yeah, who's, who's going to accept you even though you're not hiding? Yeah, and you're not running away, and you're showing up. You're showing up, and you're showing up with who you are and what's going on with you, and it doesn't mean you're trying to burden anybody with it. But you're, but you're no, you you have the difficulties you have, and the and of course, that's a whole other topic about the difficulties you have, and and it's not your lack of skill that is, you know. I mean, there's this whole thing of like if you have, if something painful is happening, you know, there's this pretty common idea. You must have done something wrong. That's child thinking. Excuse me. <laughs> I mean, there's sun and there's sun and dark and light and day and, you know, sadness, happiness. And just because and and, and the experiences in Buddhism come because of your karma or whatever they you you know you say, but you know, things arise and disappear. And it's not because of you know, you're good or bad. We all did our best growing up, and then we have a, a lot of residual stuff in the bag. Is you know the, what Bly calls it the bag, you know that we need to, you know, haul out and you know grow up and examine and look at and yeah. acknowledge and so hey. Now, Eddie Bear, there's one more thing I want to make sure we have time to talk about here before we okay. end, which is you mentioned how this group of Soto Zen teachers and priests, when they saw the movie, How to Cook Your Life, yeah. the thing that came up for them was your mother died when you were three years old and you lived in yeah. an orphanage for several yeah. years. 
And yeah. there's a, a section, a small chapter in the new book, the most important yeah. point, called Zen Practice and Meeting Early Childhood Trauma. And there is, okay. There is. And small <laughs> section. And, uh, you know, here it sounds true. This is a topic that's been very interesting to me, and we've published a lot on it, which is trying yeah. to understand how does our spiritual practice help us with the resolution of childhood trauma? And how do we need to bring in other psychological approaches, work with a therapist, et cetera? And I wanted to hear your views on this. Yeah. Um, well, I'm, uh, you know, I, I feel a little um, chagrined or embarrassed to admit that I don't exactly have views. <laughs> Except that I'm in this school, and you know I should get in. If I if I want to send you my my book about this, can I do yeah. I send it to Sounds True? Indeed, it's the book where you know I describe being Eddie Bear. It's my book that's called By All Means, um, and um, uh, so I'm in I'm in the school of anyway. By all means. Yeah, you can do Zen practice. And this is, I was reminded of this, by the way, you know, just yesterday or the day before, Sounds True sent out a, uh, an announcement of Diana Winston's book about, and she's talking about different kinds of meditation and what they're good for. And that it's not as though one is more valuable than another. Uh, and, you know, I have the feeling that um, under, you know, that it might be that under, the right circumstances, spiritual practice would be, you know, great. I found that I needed other things to do, other things besides just the Zen practice. And after 20 years of Zen practice, I did 15 years or so of Vipassana practice and, you know, a lot of retreats and with Jack Cornfield and all kinds of people and um, at IMS in Massachusetts and so on. And... Um, I, 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 and I had to do other things. I'd said, and I did... Um, and it was, you know, I've done, but I've done many things. And it, and, and some of them are, uh, I did a wonderful process workshop with Myrna Martin, uh, which was, which was, I found out some things in that. And I've had, I've had, uh, I've had very, in, you know, I have a very intuitive and brilliant, brilliant, you know, hands-on healer that I work with uh, for many years now. And especially the last couple of years, a lot. And, uh, and not everybody understands things in quite the same way, but you know, uh, analogous, and um, and it seems important to um, be able to acknowledge, uh, you know, that I mean, and it, 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 you know, it's just a simple thing of, excuse me, but this is not about today, is it? <laughs> When you're when you're in childhood trauma, it's hard to realize that's not it's not about today. It's not today. Something is surfacing, you know. Something today triggered your two-year-old persona, and it's reconstellated. And there you are, and you're two years old, or you're three years old, and mom's just died, or whatever it is. And um, so uh, you you know, and you don't realize you're two years old or three years old. And then I I also found out that. Ironically enough, I found out that I had been doing, in Zen practice, I had learned how to do spirit, uh, uh, what's called physical displacement. 
uh, or spatial displacement. Spatial displacement is the more general word, spatial displacement. And that, uh, you know, men tend to do spatial displacement and women tend to do temporal displacement. And this is something I studied largely with uh, Lansing uh, through integrated awareness, which is what I was mentioning uh, there in Petaluma, California now. Brilliant, brilliant man. I just went to a workshop there on Saturday. And um, so it's... uh, And the thing about... uh, Spatial displacement. When I found that out, I was at one of their workshops, and for spatial displacement, you just you you become aware that you put your awareness in your left leg. The awareness that could be your left leg, you put it in your left leg, and then um, and then you put it anywhere else but your left leg. You can put it in your right leg or across the room or wherever you want, but just anywhere but your left leg. And you do that with your left leg, your right leg, your left arm, your right arm, your abdomen, your chest, your neck, your head. And and then I thought, damn, this is just like meditation. So I think you need to be working with, you know, some pretty developed, well-developed people. I've since then worked with people. I did four years of energy classes with a woman in Berkeley named Linda Cesara. She's the most brilliant person I've ever met, besides Suzuki Rishi. And she can see what's going on with you. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean she's going to tell you, because she says it's better if I don't tell you, because, you know, you're just going to get resentful. If I tell you, you're going to have to figure it out for yourself, and then you can check with me. (laughs) But if you ask the right kind of question in class, you'll get an answer phenomenal, phenomenal things that people are doing out there that help you become aware of not just where your body is, but when your body is. You know, the the where, and, and, and not, I mean, you can think, well, I'm here. It's today. Yeah, I'm in my dark soundproof studio, wherever you are. You know, I'm sitting outside in the sunlight. Here I am. But where you are, you know, inside, that taking the backward step, but it turns out that there's a lot of different things that you can end up doing if you're, you know, if you don't know any better. And after I stopped uh, spatially displacing so much, then I started. One of the reasons you spatially displace is so you don't temporally displace. So then I started, you know, having I, I had years of temporal displacement. And then how do I, how do I, uh, and you know, the simple thing in Miranda Martin's workshop was. Ed, look around the room. This is today. And you look at these seven or eight other people who are in the workshop with you and the teachers. And you look around and you see the room and like, oh, okay, this is this is today. Well, it, it, it still feels kind of scary, It's but this is today, huh? And you get a little reassured and it's, you know, and I, I, I could, and I, I finally worked with somebody my friend, who was who also knew uh, Trungpa Rinpoche, he's become a hypnotherapist, Jack Elias. He does um, Finding True Magic. So I've done all these different things. And Finding True Magic, Jack is the first person who... I mean, is it, it's not like this isn't Buddhism. It is Buddhism, but but you hear it in Buddhism and you, practice, and you, you can't just practice it. You need help. You need somebody to, you need to work with somebody. And mostly, there are not a lot of great teachers out there, I'm sorry. But, and I don't consider myself, you know, one of the great teachers. But some of these people I've worked with, oh my God. 
Mm-hmm. They are great teachers. I mean, I don't, I don't compare. Even though you said you didn't have a view on my question, you have offered one just in yeah. the three words, by all means. That's a powerful yeah, perspective. Yeah, by all means. That's, why, that's yeah. why I started with that, yeah. Now, Ed, there are a lot of things we could talk about, but I think as a final kind of question here, <laughs> just because to wrap this up. You're so good at this, Timmy. <laughs> Thank you. Let's, let's wrap it up. We're going ra- to wrap it up now. I want to talk, though, to that person out there who is potentially feeling some type of real adversity or struggle in their life right now. You said you recently went to a class yeah. that was on yeah. problems, challenges, and opportunities. And, you know, I'm, I want to talk to that person right now who's suffering in some way. That's why they listen this person to Insights at the Edge, because there's several sections of the most important point that direct themselves to this question of how can we orient ourselves towards adversity such that it makes us stronger, builds us, creates access to resource. Yeah, access to resources. Um, I'm taking a moment here to, you know, see if I can find a place to start because I don't want to start too far back and I I don't want to jump too far ahead. You know, it seems like um, one of the first things to do is to find things that you can do that, that, you know, lessen the intensity. Um, you know, I, I used to, you know, take a walks. I used to walk in, you know, around Marin County here. There's in West Marin where I lived off and on for some time. You know, you can walk out at the beach, you can walk in the hills, uh, you can walk in the woods. I used to do a lot of walking. Uh, there's physical things are often very helpful. Uh, now I do Qigong. I did yoga. Yoga made a huge difference. I did, uh, uh, Qigong. The the qigong I do, and I I put it up on YouTube. You can you can you know start doing edgung. Uh, it's not <laughs> edgung the dermatologist, but edgung <laughs> edgung you know two series with Ed Brown. You know, and I've got my Zen robes on. And um, but doing something physical, and the energy starts moving, and you're not feeling as stuck. And the volume of everything can kind of go down. And you begin to have, I mean, that's very basic, to have enough resources to meet the difficulty. So you're not just spending all your time in overwhelm. And that that may also mean, you know, where you live, um, where you work, you want to, I mean, but the simple thing is to find the just the things you can do without the bigger thing of changing your job or your living or, you know, but what, what helps you have some stability in your life, some ease, some well-being? That's, I mean, uh, nowadays, sometimes I think, you know, that's, that's about it, you know, because you, when you start to have ease and well-being and you're, and you're noticing that and then you realize, you, you start to realize you have resources, you have resources available to you and you have skills and tools that you didn't know about, which is your presence, which is not in overwhelm. And that's associated with your presence in overwhelm is because we think it's the loving thing to do 
to go in there with this poor suffering person and join them. And many people have said, you know, if you're going to go down in the pit with somebody who's suffering, you better know how to get out. Well, I went down in the pit with somebody who was suffering me for years, not knowing how to get out, and then we're just both down there in the pit together. <laughs> but if you can do some, uh, you know, go for a walk, have a cup of tea, uh, you know, see a, talk to a neighbor, see a friend, um, uh, do some Qigong yoga, uh, you know, some people do dance, you know, some people do singing um, I mentioned in the things that I that I do, but you start to feel you're just you know you're good energy, um, and then you know you have resources, and then and then it's it's also similar by the way. I started doing just a little bit from a book of uh, I think it's called Focusing, but you take something disturbing inside, and you you imagine a bench next to you, and you say, "Excuse me, I'd like you to sit on this bench here," and I started doing that in meditation. Nobody told me that in Zen. But it turns out that's that's pretty nice. You take what's difficult and you and you put it outside, and then pretty soon you start to feel like, oh, I'm okay. It was that I got entangled in that problem. I got entangled in those in those memories or those pictures. I got entangled, and then I got you know I got sucked down with it. So I need to put that enough at a distance it's not like I'm trying to get rid of it but I, I, I can put it at enough distance that I can start to feel well and safe and you know good and then and then you're also in a position to ask for help and to you know um, and, and you know beginner's mind and what do I do and how do I work with this and what are the possibilities and um, but you begin to have some basic well-being so I think just the simple things to do to have some basic well-being and there are times when I didn't understand this, and but but then I'd have to do, you know, I mean, it's literally kind of like I do. I'm going to do yoga for survival. I need to do yoga in order to survive the pain. I need to do qigong so that I, I'm not just a puddle here. I need to do this, and I found that the physical activities were were um, at some point when I was in in the more acute stages of things, I found that physical activity was much better than sitting. I I, I, I could sit, but it it wasn't as uh, effective for coming to this place, a sense of well-being and goodness and a you know, flow of vitality. And you and to me, you get that with you know some uh, a lot with movement, which is also what what got me through Tassahara originally was you know that I worked in the kitchen. I wouldn't have survived if we were just practicing meditation. So anyway, there you have it, by all means. <laughs> you know, Eddie Bear, I feel your heart and the kind of alive brokenness of a huge heart. Uh, that's what I feel. Yeah. And it's a, it's a real gift, so thank you. Thank you so much. All right. Have a good afternoon. Blessings. Love you. Blessings. I've been talking with Edward Espy Brown. There's a new book, which is a collection of his Zen teachings from over 350 lectures, edited by Danny S. Parker, a student of his. It's called The Most Important Point. With Sounds True, Edward Espy Brown has also published the book No Recipe, Cooking as Spiritual Practice. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. 
that sounds true, we are dedicated to creating a wiser and kinder world by making transformational education widely accessible. The new Sounds True Foundation exists to remove financial barriers and make sure that people in communities of need have access to transformational tools and teachings. You can find out more at SoundsTrueFoundation.org. You can also read a full transcript of this episode at SoundsTrue.com forward slash podcast. And if you haven't already done so, and you want to subscribe to Insights at the Edge, please be sure to hit the subscribe button in your listening app. And if you hear something that really matters to you, that changes you, then share that insight and this podcast with others. Together, we can wake up the world. Thanks again for listening, and I look forward to being with you next time. Soundstrue.com, waking up the world.